Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Artist Don Scarf's work investigates resonance, perception, and environmental atmospheres by utilizing a variety of forms and contexts, including site-specific installation, performance, and field recording. Through her work and curiosity, she provides us the opportunity to listen deeply and engage with an environment, to discover relations and exchanges that might be invisible or unseen. Currently based in London, Dawn has exhibited and performed in forests, parks, botanical gardens, city centers, galleries, and concert halls all across the UK and internationally. She was recently featured as an essayist in the book Environmental Sound Artists, in their own words, published by Oxford University Press. Dawn, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed exploring all the sounds and photos of your work on your website, and there's so much to, to talk about. I think we have a lot in common, and I'm certainly very interested in, in what you're doing. Um, I actually found your work through the book that I mentioned, which, which might come up again uh, later on. But before we delve into all of the specifics here, I, I always like to start these conversations by getting some background. And you can feel free to take this wherever you'd like, but... But in your case, uh, perhaps it would be interesting to start with your interest in nature or natural sounds, organic forms, that kind of thing. So what would you point to either in your life or training as uh, inspiration for, for that interest? Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a funny one, that, because, um, you know, I can't really explain uh, what it is about um, this kind of process of sort of going outside, wanting to sort of get beyond yourself, um, you know, without really also talking about perception. Um, so as you said in your introduction, um, you know, these things often go hand in hand in, in what I do. So um, talking about formative experiences, I guess I'd go back to uh, maybe experiments with uh, the color wheel and color theory that I encountered um, as an undergraduate and um, we had to do a series of exercises um, you know just really looking at color and making charts um, dealing with uh, colored shadows and um, complementary colors and just really working with paints to sort of train your eye to see these details that you might have overlooked for you know most of your adult life um, and just sort of looking again at the things around you. Um, it was really kind of inspiring for me, just a, a colleague had also been through the same process. And, um, you know, he said it was the most colorful spring he'd ever encountered, you know, just by virtue of having gone through these exercises that sort of retrained the eye. So, um, yeah, that really carries through to a lot of my work with sound. It's kind of how does the experience of listening a change your experience, you know, in comparison to the experience of looking at something. What was your training in? Did you have any training in, in composition or, or or sound studies? How how did you how did you move into that world? Uh, well, I guess I I was just really into initially really into drawing and painting, and uh, I knew I wanted to do 
art, but I, I wasn't, I was still kind of finding my feet, I guess. And um, so I, I enrolled on this course at Oxford Brooks, which was quite open, you know, it was just a general fine art training. So you sort of learned all sorts of techniques. And I think what was interesting about that place at the time was, um, you know, they, there was this art and music MA going on. Um, and, and that really sort of fed into my thinking, you know, I became interested in, instead of sort of 3D stuff, in time-based work. And um, yeah, at that point, I guess I felt like I really um, wanted to engage with what was going on in this sort of with, with the music people and how the two fields could come together. So I would spend a lot of my time actually in the music department in the basement sort of learning Cubase software and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, and, and then I really felt like I, I there was a sort of deficiency there on my part. So the next thing that I wanted to do is to sort of in, insert myself into a composition environment. So even though it was electronic composition, you know, I was in there with a lot of really good musicians they all had their sort of instrument I mean I only really did a, a, a sort of half-baked attempt at learning viola I got so far and I was really into it but just maybe not so into the classical pieces uh, it's more sort of as a uh, just enjoying enjoying the sound enjoying sort of playing it without wanting to sort of perfect these sort of melodies I mean viola you never got that fantastic kind of sense yeah. of uh, that you were the centerpiece really anyway you're always doing the accompaniment to someone else's tune, if you know what I mean. So that probably didn't help with that. Yeah, v- viola, <laughs> viola yeah. seems like an interesting choice. I mean, I'm, I'm a percussionist, you know, so we're the ones that uh, we're called on to do all the crazy stuff in the orchestra, you know, the honk the horns in Gershwin or cue the bird calls and the, you know, I mean, that's us. So so when it when it comes to, oh, collect these tin cans and stones and, uh, you know, play whatever, we're, we're the kind of always the ones to do that. So it's sort of interesting that you would uh, go to the viola. Was that something that you chose for your yourself or was that just sort of how did you get there well yeah it's strange I mean in England that they well where I was they made us do sort of listening tests and sort of based on that you were kind of selected to to sort of be able to do an instrument if you wanted and and so this was all through school and um I actually really wanted to play the cello just because I really like that sort of low mellow tone to the instrument um but they didn't have a cello teacher so I sort of did the next best thing which was <clears throat> which was the viola um and I still sort of look back on it fondly I mean I've still got one out it sort of comes out occasionally but yeah. um but I it's it's kind of a point of contention almost for me that I'm you know I feel very inferior compared to sort of proper musicians <laughs> um yeah, so, but, yeah. I mean, that was a good thing about electronic composition, you know, it was a bit more open to if you had sort of interests in, in terms of sort of acoustics um, and, and sort of or science, or you could be coming at it from these other, and, or art, I mean, it was quite open to people from different disciplines um, mm. and all sort of learning from each other, so that's what appealed to me about that kind of context. Well, that's a great transition point to talking about some of your work. Um, and you mention uh, two names that I pulled from your, uh, just in reading about your works, uh, two names, Alvin Lussier and uh, uh, Hemholtz as, oh, yeah. as two sort of, uh, in, I was curious, I didn't read too much about the Lussier connection, but I know that you had at least one work that you mentioned his name. And so I was wondering if you had ever, 
if that w- if he was an influence for you or if you ever uh, performed or heard any of his works live because I, I see certainly a lot of uh, connections between especially some of the pieces like for strings and that type of thing that you do uh, mm-hmm. as, as being related to, to what he's done uh, was that was that at all an influence yeah I mean there was this guy uh, at, uh, when I was doing my um, MA in electronic composition he was doing acoustic uh, John Laley he's a really good composer and um, he actually had Alvin Lucio over to do a series of concerts at uh, Tate Britain I think oh yeah, uh, this was going back probably to 2007 or something. But, um, yeah, and I always remember those pieces. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact titles now, but it was for sign, tone, and voice, and just the experience of having these kind of tones, you know, very much just an experience in space, kind of spinning spinning around the room. Um, yeah, and this, this idea of sort of tuning in um, it has been really sort of influential on, on the things that I do. So, And it's funny because it comes back in different ways I mean uh, that sort of piece that I did about sort of broadcasting from forests that I didn't realize at the time but Lucy had also written about his fantasy of, of being a sort of American uh, fur trapper or yeah. Canadian might have been. <laughs> um, and, and just that experience of kind of listening as if your life depended on it so it's, it's funny like even without intending it I'd find that there might be elements of his work or his thinking that might sort of come back when you don't expect. Yeah, that's fascinating. There, there's a. Um, I, I saw this past summer. We, I do a summer um, festival here for um, students, uh, percussionists, and we had an expert in um, on Lucier's music to do a presentation, and he presented the the piece "Music on a Long Thin Wire," which is basically mm-hmm. an, an amplified wire that's um, uh, uh, basically just picking up the ambient sound of the room and you know it's a it's mysterious how it happens but eventually the thing starts vibrating you know and um mm-hmm. uh it's absolutely fascinating and and i saw i i definitely saw some connections between that and some of your work with the aeolian harps and and some of the other pieces involving strings that that definitely made a connection for me so maybe this is a good transition point for to talk about the listening glasses Mm-hmm. These are, um, I'll, of course, you should describe them, but but if I may, they're they're these beautiful uh, sort of round glass sculptures that one would hold up to uh, the ear, and I can only imagine what that sound would be like. There are a few recordings that that you've made, but uh, you know the experience of actually being there and holding it up must be a singular one, and uh, and so I gather from reading about that that this was inspired by the Hemholtz uh, study. So m- maybe mm-hmm. a sort of a three-part question here. So first, how did you get interested in Hemholtz? Because uh, that mm-hmm. that connects to what we were talking with before. Uh, so let's start there. Um, so yeah, I guess like you say, that does relate back to this kind of feeling that I needed to sort of get my teeth into like um, acoustics and. Um, because I guess when I was first exploring, you know, moving from a more visual world into a more sort of sonic world um, of practice, I, I would sort of take things from my cupboard, you know, wine glasses, and, and I made a few pieces with those initially. Um, instead of just sort of dismissing that, I actually got really interested in the the way that this had been used as a as an instrument <laughs> from sort of you know 17th century onwards um and just all the really bizarre stuff you would find um 
from comments at the time like it might send women mad or dogs into fits or and the way that kind of dovetailed with these early experiments in in um acoustics as well just really sort of trying to pin down the nature of sound so there's this uh, natural philosopher called robert hook who I, again he's one of these people that i keep coming back to who worked a lot with uh you know cladney plates and wine glasses and sort of sympathetic vibration and things like that um so i guess where Helmholtz comes in is kind of an extension of that interest and it probably just came about as being sort of into the title of that book he did you know on the sensations of tone it was just something that really sort of drew me in so I was interested in what he was saying about how music is maybe a more direct way of experiencing you know perception than, than might happen with a painting or something because you don't have to bring the intellect in at all it's kind of a pure experience of the sort of dynamics between all these different tones and this is kind of what he says in the introduction which was sort of initially interesting and then but as usual I get sort of really into the um, nuts and bolts of the experiments really and the kind of forms that they would take so when I saw the illustration of the uh, resonator so the Helmholtz resonator which is basically what the listening glasses are I was just really sort of taken with this because like I said it's a sort of mysterious shape a sort of round uh, vessel that you would sort of put directly in your ear I mean it was kind of this really intrigued me as a sort of intimate experience and also this alternative kind of atmosphere just contained in this sort of transparent material So, yeah, it was that, and and also the the difficulty in sort of getting hold of these, because you you would find them in museums in sort of brass form, but never glass, and I quite like the idea of sort of, you know, just trying to redevelop a series of these, so just to see how they, and experience how they worked in the the world, because um, that's another sort of key part, I guess, of what what intrigued me about them is when Helmholtz is introducing them, he talks about, him taking them outside of the lab um, into the streets and listening to the sound of carriage wheels and fountains and, and other sounds that we would, you know, speak of as noise, uh, noise of the city and, and actually trying to find these musical tones using the resonances uh, in these sounds. So, and I couldn't really think of any other way of, of experiencing that without making them myself and, and, and taking them outside. So Maybe uh, because of, of the um, medium here, maybe you could describe a little more the, the, what these actually look like and how they, and how they work. And the sort of, did you get into glass blowing to have to make these for yourself? But maybe you could talk about that process and the, the physical object of it and describe it a little more. Yeah, sure. So, um, so they're quite. They look a lot since it's Christmas now. A lot like Christmas baubles. Um, so round in shape. They've got one opening uh, which is supposed to be exposed to the air. Um, a circular opening at one side, which which helps with the tuning, depending on the size of that. And then on the other side, I'd compare it to sort of the top of an onion. It's like a tapered 
shape that is designed to go in your ear and be sealed with wax um, initially to get a tight sort of connection. Yeah, so so one of the ways you can use them is to just plug them into your ear and listen directly um, to uh, uh, to say as Helmholtz would use them the sound of a, a musical string and um, I guess he was often listening for partials in that sound, you know, so to determine what these uh, notes were made up of um, rather than you know tuning the string itself. So th- that's the kind of description of the type of thing that they are, yeah. and then I've forgotten the second part of that question sorry oh just uh how did you learn to make these i mean did you have to learn glass oh. blowing or how did you how did you do it again i think i it was it's one of those things where you go through several ways of trying to do it and then uh, fortunately i came across a yeah a glass blower attached to um queen mary university of london who was quite up for sort of experimenting with this type of thing because he'd not actually been asked to make one of these before but um you know that there's a lot of things in in the lab that would that sort of compare to that so, you know the, the the standard format that we adapted is a sort of borosilicate um vase that you would have a long neck on it and you could sort of boil water in you know so uh, some of them do, if some of the bigger ones we just use existing vases that are then adapted uh, but the smaller ones you kind of has to make uh, from scratch so um, and it was just a case of giving the illustration over and, and finding Helmholtz's um, measurements and trying to recreate as best as possible so so often they're not you know fantastically accurate they're always my sort of best guess at you know what what the frequency should be but also I think when you see Helmholtz his own measurements I mean they're some way off what we would you know call like really accurate devices today i think he had his own instrument maker after these first series that were you know fashioned uh, they got increasingly more precise um, but i was wasn't really interested so much in the precision as the um just kind of what happens you know what happens if you make them smaller and <laughs> the yeah. openings this size that size and, and actually the the quality of just how how the sound would move around the, i remember first listening to them and it seemed to be this kind of really tangible sense of the sound sort of coming in and moving around the glass. Um, yeah. So how do you uh, then exhibit these uh, glasses? I mean, there are some recordings that you have on your website that were made with uh, very small microphones I- inside uh, the glass. But how do you how do you exhibit them? Are they uh, public um, exhibitions of them so people can try them out or are they in galleries? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So the thing um, I guess that um, happens with quite a lot of my work is I'm interested in presenting it in different ways. So depending on what the opportunity might be. Um, So I guess the first time they were developed, it was uh, in the context of an exhibition about sound. So for that, it sort of made sense to have have them uh, to use acoustically, sort of just in a display often working with how you would encounter them in museums, so a very carefully crafted wooden uh, stand um, that looks quite Victoriana and just instructions with a little booklet for people to sort of put them to the rear and take them outside to find, try and find the tones and the sound of the traffic that was really busy road outside. So that that was kind of one way. 
and I often either work with uh, ambient sounds, often the sound of a, a road, um, or it can be sign tones as well. So I've been, recently done another uh, version, which again, you can handle the glasses directly, um, but I'll have synthesized a, a tone that can be heard in the room that might be made up of the sounds of, say, five different glasses. So what you have is the experience of kind of listening. You have a tone which... which um, it seems to just sound like one, like a doorbell or something, like a constant doorbell. But when you pick up and listen through all the different sizes of glasses, you'll pick out a different sort of strand to that sound. So uh, yeah. um, it sort of fragments it using the glasses. You can kind sort of, of split, kind of split it up. filters the the sound in a way to hear only a certain bandwidth or something of the, of the yeah. Tone. yeah 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 yeah. Wow, and fascinating. I guess it appeals to me because it's kind of like, uh, you know, the Pink Floyd cover, the Newton sort of prism of glass, um, but sort of in, in reverse, I guess. Yeah, 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 um, exactly. Uh, so. Well, uh, they're fascinating and, and beautiful and um, what what interesting work. Um, this is maybe a good point to pivot to talk about another thing that uh, is from a few years back, uh, the harmonica. And so I'd, I'm very curious to know a little bit more about this instrument, which is a very old instrument, uh, as you say, invented by Benjamin Franklin, essentially a series of glass bowls that are attached to a spindle, and then you, anyone that's played like a wine glass uh, with water in it or would, would understand the sort of science at work here and the kind of sound that, that one would get from that. So can you describe uh, that instrument and talk about how you worked with it? Sure. So... Um... Again, this is probably it was sort of coming out of those the initial experiments I did with the you know wine glasses from the kitchen. You know, I started to build up like big uh, collection of things that I'd hoarded from sort of uh, charity shops, and um, I really like the idea of sort of being able to sound you know multiple things at, at one time, but you're sort of restricted with the with the wine glass format because you've only got two hands and, <laughs> you know, so I guess I kind of started layering all that stuff by recording and then, but it, still I wasn't quite getting this kind of um, experience of, 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 of t- actually physically playing lots of glasses at once. So, um, and again, sort of looking into the history of musical instruments and things, I, that's when I came across this... Um, harmonica invention and uh yeah it's just really kind of bizarre and inspiring and um so I really wanted to sort of try and 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 play it myself and uh so I was invented sorry I was invented I was asked by Alex Korkowski who's um a violinist and artist who's building up this wax cylinder archive uh, to collaborate with him on a project. And, um, yeah, we just thought it would be really good to go to Benjamin Franklin house, uh, to the place where the instrument was invented and, and make this recording. Yeah, again, it was just this experience of, like, laying your hands on all the different sort of layers of glass and, and, and combining that tone. And the instrument itself, uh, some of them are, can be played by a pedal and sometimes they're mechanised. Um, and I really like the mechanised version because it's... You can sustain a note for as long as you want, and you have to wet the the glass first with a little bit of water. Some people use resin as well on their fingers, but in that particular museum, they had a bizarre, <laughs> a bizarre method of kind of using a J cloth or something, 
you know, to, to create that extra bit of friction. And oh. I was kind of baffled by this because, uh, well, the whole point is you can use your whole, you know, every single finger. And um, so I made myself gloves out of unfortunately <laughs> you can't you know you can't see any of that ridiculous stuff going on because it's a we, you know we made a recording but um yeah yeah that's kind of like behind the scenes tell me a little bit more about the uh the the wax cylinder uh recording so what what uh this was released somehow or or how was this how did this come about uh, well, Alex has been doing this for maybe about 12 years now. I think he's now uh, got a residency in the British Library where he's invited um, poets to come and record. Uh, and it's very short recordings because of the nature of the medium. It's yeah. like two minutes long or something. But that's his kind of life's work now, I guess. It's like building up these different archives. Um, so back in 2012, he'd been working with a series of uh, composers and um musicians and yeah we just started um talking about how we could collaborate and so in the end this actually uh became we tried to put it back onto a, a glass disc and we we had lots of difficulties in trying to do this and uh uh you know we're sort of thinking about would we use acid would you use lamp black would you use acrylic um so yeah so somewhere there exists these glass discs that we recorded onto i think we exhibited them at some point and and now i guess they're just living back with alex in his flat somewhere amongst his other sort of you know hundreds of <laughs> wax discs really interesting process you know it wasn't really to to make anything to sell or an ambition beyond being this sort of like collaboration and, and sort of accessing this harmonica and working together yeah so. great fascinating um so so the instrument that you played was was one of uh was a recreation or was actually one of the old instruments or how did you produce it oh yeah it was a it was a recreation that sort of exists in the in the museum and um might be played sort of you know once a week or something um or for special special occasions so they had that um made i think it was made in america and, and shipped over yeah and, and they have another one as well at the royal college of music that it was sort of that probably functions you know a little more sleekly than than that one but we again i was just kind of really attracted to this atmosphere of sort of being in the room where it was dreamt up in the first place. And um, also I think there was this quote from his wife where she first heard the sound of the instrument and thought it was the voice of angels or something. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of like trying to connect with, with that history really through the project. So Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting history. And I, I happen to know that there was, um, that Mozart wrote a piece for glass harmonica, which I assume is probably a uh, similar uh, type of thing. Um, I mean, this was invented in 1761, which which is right around um, right around the time, maybe a f uh, several years later, when when Mozart was writing his um, 
glass harmonica piece. And mm -hmm. it's a very odd, funny little odd piece. Uh, it doesn't really get played very much, but uh, obviously. But there are some people who play it like on vibraphone, on other, you know, instruments. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's uh, a fascinating historical sort of moment that this instrument sort of was there for a, a, just a flickering moment, yet one of the, you know, one of the composers that anyone on the street would recognize had, had written for this thing. Uh, so that was sort of an interesting uh, connection. Yeah, for sure. No, I know that piece because um, when I was in Vienna, I, I met a duo who have been, you know, they, they had their own um, glass harmonica made and uh, also a, a slightly different um so it looks like a glass xylophone or something has lots of glass tubes uh, hanging down. They often sort of uh, play together on the, on those two instruments. But yeah, I've seen um, I've seen them perform that piece a lot, and they're they're really good. I mean, um, it's quite inspiring for me to to just know that they've made that their their life's work in a yeah. way. This is maybe a good point to make another pivot, and um, I I found your name and and your work through. Uh, this book, I, I got interested in the sonic ecology and, and artists that were working in that field, and that led somehow to finding a link for this for this new book, which has just come out. Uh, our local library here has just acquired a copy, so I I have it, and I've been reading all the essays. And but the book is called "Environmental Sound Artists in Their Own Words." And before the book was released, I I saw the press release of it, and and was sort of I just went through the essays, looked at the titles of the essays and the authors, and sort of went exploring from there. And so that's actually how I uh, came upon your your work and your essay in the in this new book is about a project called the Bivy Broadcasts, which which you explain are, are live overnight broadcasts where you're literally broadcasting while you're sleeping or in the case of your essay, you talk about trying to sleep uh, in a bivy, which is sort of a what I understand sort of like a primitive sort of minimalist camping sack, I guess, for lack of a better word. Uh, but you're doing that on the forest floor and broadcasting from there. Maybe you can just kind of walk us through uh, that project and how it all came about. Sure. Yeah. So um, I guess initially there's two things, really. I, I'd applied for a residency uh, with Sound and Music and Forestry Commission England, and it was quite an unusual residency because, um, you know, they didn't really have an idea of where I would be working. It was just kind of open to me to explore hundreds of forests, you know, across England. And I was really keen to sort of take up that opportunity and see as many as I could. Um, and at the same time, I'd been getting into this this practice of bivying, which, as you say, is quite some sort of economical, minimal way of um, sleeping out at night. It's just a very thin sort of waterproof bag. Um, and I guess the emphasis is on sort of economy, you know, reducing everything down to the bare minimum. Yeah, what I noticed, I sort of applied the bivying to, to these forests every time I do a visit. And I just became really interested in what happened to my perception, as I said at the beginning, this is an ongoing interest of mine. Um, so once you sort of encounter the night in this really exposed position, I, I found that I started to listen sort of really intensively, more intensively than I had before. And it, it was to do with this feeling of being sort of quite exposed um, and really not being used to this kind of environment, having lived in the city for 
you know, 10 years. I was kind of wondering how I could share that experience and connect with people back at home in more sort of domestic environments and, and doing this in quite a minimal way. So I just simply wanted to send a signal and kind of thought that I could send a stream of sound through the night from 11 o'clock at night till 7 o'clock in the morning. And with the hope and the invitation, really, that people would then play that out into their own environment and, and possibly even sleep through it. So just layering these two environments. Yeah. Uh, and and also I was sort of collecting, trying to collect accounts from people who had tuned in and the kind of experience they had and how it compared to mine. And that was sort of an interesting part of the essay where you talk about um, some of those responses that you got. And one of the things that I remarked uh, or that uh, sort of hit a point of resonance for me because I've been camping before, and you you don't sleep in the sense that you do in a in your home, you know, in a in a closed environment. If you're sleeping out in a tent, or in your case, even a more exposed way, the sleeping is not the same. You're you're very much uh, aware of what's happening around you, and uh, yeah, I've remembered several camping trips where you know, the rustling in the night and, and there's something outside the tent and, you know, it, it, there's a sense of not knowing what's out there in the dark that, that is off-putting in a way that you really only get by putting yourself in that situation. And we're so accustomed to being in our uh, safe zones and shelters and homes that, that that sort of visceral connection with nature can can really cause you to think about, uh, you know, that interaction in a, in a different way. That if it weren't for these four walls, you know, uh, there's nothing separating us and the elements. And, and th- this project of yours sort of allows you to experience that from a distance, right? And so that's sort of, that's the fascinating thing to me is like, what, what are you hearing from people who are, who are tuning in and playing it, playing these sounds, is it, you know, it's fascinating because you're once removed uh, from the, from what's going on by, by just listening to it. But, you know, I, can you talk a little bit more about that, of what you've heard from people and, and sort of how does that sort of jive with your experience? Yeah, because I, I mean, I wasn't, uh, I didn't have the expectation that they would be listening in the same state as, as me like you say because it's very much kind of this this anxious um feeling that it, it can only really happen when when you do feel kind of out there and and, and exposed so yeah my feeling what i got from other people was completely the opposite like they find it sort of um really relaxing and you know it was something that they could tune tune out quite happily to um but have it sort of um inhabit it as a kind of texture and and I guess yeah very much like you have the sense that there is they connect a lot with me actually being out there they'll sort of worry about what I'm doing and kind of what's going on around me and sort of um yeah I would often sort of take it for granted that um they'd be thinking about me at all but it was often that the <laughs> question would come back it's like oh are you all right are you very brave all this kind of stuff um yeah yeah so uh yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, oh no, I was just going to say, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to just read a, a passage from the from the book where you're talking about this very thing. Yeah, sure. 
you say, I remember feeling disturbed that there was nothing in between me and the sounds of the dark and resolved to immerse myself in this precarious condition by sleeping out in a bivy bag on the forest floor. This magnified the sense of exposure, as bivy bags take time to wriggle in and out of, movement is restricted, and the face remains open to the elements at all times. This prone situation led me to an anxious state of listening, the result of not knowing what I might encounter in a forest environment and being very sensitive to the absence of boundary or space between myself and the amorphous blackness of the outside. Every tiny, ambiguous scratching, snapping, or rustling sound seemed amplified to unnatural proportions. I imagined all sorts of traumatic scenarios resulting from these slight sounds in the foliage. Angry badgers pouncing and scratching at me, slugs sliding into my bivy, or poachers stumbling across me in the middle of the night. These paranoid thoughts became less disturbing the more I bivvied, but still there was a gulf between the nature of the sound and the predicted consequence, coupled with a sense of urgency in listening. I rarely fell into a deep sleep. Instead, through a series of semi-conscious states, I remained compulsively engaged with what I could hear. I think that's a beautiful description of, of your experience there and uh, a beautiful writing as well. But that is exactly when I read, you know, angry badgers jumping in the middle of the night. I, I've been there, you know, I've been in uh, those tents where something is literally scratching right on the tent. And I'm thinking, this is it, <laughs> you know, and it's a very heightened state. Uh, there's something about the, the, the darkness, too of being out, uh, you know, camping in a place where there's, you know, I did some camping in a remote part of Wyoming. Uh, mm-hmm. I lived there for a year and Wyoming is very sparsely populated. And, and this was in the m- absolute middle of nowhere, you know, no one around for ou- hours drive, you know, and uh, that sense of darkness and isolation. And, and then you hear these sounds. It's just sort of um, a really uh, fascinating experience. And then funny how it changes when the light comes up in the morning and, and mm. you're out in the same space in the daytime and how it feels so much less threatening and less uh, scary, uh, even though maybe you're hearing some of the same sounds, you know. It's just really fascinating, this whole thing. So how did you get the idea to to broadcast these experiences? What, what led you to decide that that was the way to communicate these experiences? Um, I guess, uh, so initially I had this impulse to, you know, send, send a signal out. Um, just, I think it's because it does increase this sense of isolation, you know, being sort of trapped in a, in a small bag and not, not knowing who else is out there. Um, and you sort of have this sense where you really want to connect to people, maybe back home, just to just to say, yes, I'm here. <laughs> you know, I haven't been absorbed by this kind of blackness. I guess just thinking about sort of a media, a suitable medium like radio, yeah, it just really appealed to me to set up a kind of audio stream. I mean, obviously you can send signals with light as well, but um, 
because it's kind of in keeping with the sort of blackness and the um you know this heightened sense of, of listening that I had I felt like I wanted to to use sound yeah just also to have something time-based that would last the whole night and um yeah. and and as someone who's kind of doing field recording and stuff anyway it sort of seemed like a natural thing to do um but having said that, it was a, sort of a bit of a conflict because you don't want to take lots of technology into a sort of situation like that. So, so part of the process was kind of figuring out how I could send a stream with sort of minimal equipment. I went through various ways of kind of taking a laptop and gradually reducing the power down, um, thinking about solar panels, all this kind of stuff. But then, yeah, just, just coming to the... Raspberry Pi sort of technology and using a signal from a phone because Raspberry Pi is so small and light, um, you know, can uh, with a small battery it will kind of run for a week, let alone through the night. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it just seemed to be like you know with the economy of the whole setup there, it, it seems to be sort of quite a natural uh, fit, you know, using adapting things that you would carry with you anyway for like for the time or basic communication and. Um, so what is the uh, what is the future for for Bivy Broadcast? Will there be more, or was it just this one sort of project? For me, it sort of dovetailed with this um, project concerned with the Dawn Chorus. Uh, so I've been working a lot with Soundcamp since then, um, and in fact, it was uh, with Soundcamp that I came to using this sort of Raspberry Pi. So from sort of day one, uh, the Bivy Broadcast was kind of connecting with. With this other project. Um, okay, I was going to ask about that, the Sound yeah. Camp project. So, can you talk a little bit about that and how this is related? Yeah, so um, I guess in the process of the Bivy broadcast, I was looking for a place to share the stream to. Uh, so, I'd send it out on my website and also places like Resonance FM, which operates from London. And um, so, at the same time as I was putting the feelers out for who might want to pick up this broadcast. I'd, I'd seen this call for people to submit live streams that would become part of this radio broadcast that happens live um, on International Dawn Chorus Day in May. And uh, basically, it, it starts in London at, and follows the sound of the Dawn Chorus around the world on live streams submitted from like individuals like me out there in a bivy or. Uh, radio stations or um, webcams from nature reserves or city parks. Um, it's a whole array of different kinds of feeds. Simultaneously, there's also this kind of camping event that happens because I guess the idea is that uh, it's to have this community of streamers and listeners who sort of get together and send out their own sounds and then also listen back to, to the broadcast as it travels around the world. Mm. So, yeah, and each year we try and make that a little bit, um, take it in a different direction. So it's been going for three years now, and we're just working on the plans for 2017. Yeah, and so this happens uh, last year, or well, 2016 was 30th of April to the 1st of May. So that's a 24-hour broadcast is what you're talking about uh, was happened on those days. So that's in the works for, for 2017 then. Yes, yeah, it should be the 5th of, of May, I think. <laughs> I need to double-check that. But, um, yeah, because it's set by International Dawn Chorus Day, okay. uh, and uh, we go with that date. So um, we're just trying to get together the 
sort of commissions for the London event, working with um, lots of interesting musicians and artists. So, yeah, yeah I was reading like, about the Sound Camp project, and it, uh, I noted that it was um, not just artists, but also scientists and activists and uh, lots of people that are involved with this thing. It's not not just uh, artists that are involved. So it seems like a really interesting sort of collaborative, sort of cross-disciplinary uh, event that happens, uh, that's happened for the last three years. It, it it's, will be interesting to see how it grows and, and what's moving forward. Do you have any information about the 2017 plans or who will be involved or any of that? Uh, well, I guess it's being a little bit cautious here because, as usual, these things sort of depend, depend on funding. But I mean, there are lots of interesting people who have expressed kind of, um, you know, a desire to be involved in the past, so funding or not. Um, I think we'll be working with Rob St. John, who uh, does a lot of work with um, hydrophones and, um, yeah, just generally engaging with sort of wilderness places and writing about that. Yeah, we're going to have a focus this year on sort of live improvisation with, um, you know, acoustic instruments responding to the sounds on site, but also the streams that are coming in. So, um, yeah, that, that's a kind of new focus for this year, really. Wow, great. Well, sounds terrific. I'll, I'll keep posted on that, and I'll make sure and include the, the link for that and for your website on the, in the show notes so anyone that's listening that wants to follow up can find the information there. I think we're getting up on our time here, so I'd like to do our, our closing segment, and I always like to close the podcast by asking a, a very simple question, and uh, I've had so, such interesting responses, so I'll, I'll give you your, your moment here. So how does one live and sustain a creative life? Um, well, I'd say I'm still figuring that one out, uh, very much so, but... Um for sure, it depends a lot on on having people you can go to to sort of discuss ideas and techniques and just really feedback on the experience of work. So for me, for sure, I've I've really depended on sort of communities of of people who are sort of interested in the same things and uh, that you can sort of explore ideas with really. Thank you, Don, so much for taking the time to visit with me today. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music, You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.